This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with fingers crossed everybody knows the war is over everybody knows the good guys lost everybody knows the fight was fixed the poor stay poor the rich get rich that's how it goes everybody Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls. All right, I have another uh, funeral story. Everybody knows. About uh, just over a year ago, uh, my Uncle Tom passed away, you may recall, and I came home from the funeral and uh, uh, north who is uh, two minutes younger than uh, his twin brother. Um, He's four going on 28. Uh, So I come home from my uncle's uh, funeral, and uh, North looks at me, and he says, So, did you bury Tom? (laughs) How can you not laugh at that? And that's children are wonderful that way, uh, in helping you uh, get over the the grief and the tension. Anyway, uh, sadly, another uh, funeral uh, recently... Uh, a friend, and uh, we uh, we take the kids to the uh, the funeral home to the visitation, and I know that can be kind of a touchy subject, and we would never you know tell other people how to handle it, but we've decided, the mighty Aphrodite and I, that death is a part of life, and it's natural, and it's uh, nothing to be afraid of, and uh, so we we take them, and I tell you, these uh, kids are able to turn a solemn uh, event into um, well, they just make it easier. And uh, so before we went to the visitation, we said uh, to North and Zach, I said, you know, so-and-so, uh, they lost their dad, and they're going to be kind of sad today. They're going to be really sad today. So we want you to, you know, go up to them and hug them and tell them that you love them and, and say, you're sorry. We're sorry you lost your dad. And North says to me, and the mighty Aphrodite, without skipping a beat, Again, we said to him, you know, tell them that, that you're sorry. And North says, why? We didn't do it. <laughs> man, oh, man, you can't, you can't write lines like that. Anyway, 
Uh, I hope you enjoyed the conspiracy show on Vision TV on Friday night. Uh, we, uh, we tackled the New World Order and uh, the second episode, because they air, of course, back-to-back episodes starting at 11 p.m. The second episode was on time travel, and that's one of my favorite top topics. So I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, next week on the program, I'm going to give you a chance, because many of you have been emailing and uh, you have suggestions for future episodes of the TV show and you want to... You want to talk about what you've seen so far? We're going to give you that opportunity. We'll open up the phone lines at some point next Sunday, and uh, you can talk about uh, the episodes that you've seen on the Conspiracy Television Show, Vision TV, Friday nights at 11 p.m. And let me point out, the website for that TV show is now online, and I really want you to, 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 um, to log on, visit it, check it out, keeping in mind it's a work in progress, but it is www.theconspiracyshow.com All right, I, um, I mentioned time travel being one of my favorite topics. Well, this is another one, and uh, I should say that uh, my next guest's, uh, one of his books actually has become my uh, most recent favorite a book. It's called Why the Universe is the Way It Is. In fact, if you go to uh, the website, theconspiracyshow.com, and uh, there's a, a page there where you can click on, it says, About Us. And you can, you can learn a little bit about the various uh, people that put that show together, myself included, and our director, Jalal, and our executive producer and producer, Ron Craig, etc. Anyway, if you go to my uh, page on, on there, uh, and it mentions my favorite book, and, and it says right there, Why the Universe is the Way It Is. And we're going to talk about that tonight, among other things. We're going to talk about whether or not Science and the Holy Scripture, the Holy Scriptures are at odds, or are they in fact compatible? And we're also going to discuss how increasingly astronomers recognize that if the cosmos had not unfolded exactly as it did, we wouldn't be here. We would not, could not exist. So, do science and Bible and the Bible offer contradictory answers to life's biggest questions? We're going to make the phone lines available to you as well to uh, discuss and get in on the, the, uh, the conversation because we want your voices. 416-360-0740. And toll free from just about anywhere, Thunder Bay, Thunder Bay to the Carolinas and Maine to Minnesota, 866-744-740, 1-866-744-740. That being said, Dr. Hugh Ross launched his career at the age of seven when he went to the library to find out why stars are hot. Seven years old. I was still wetting the bed, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> anyway, physics and astronomy captured his curiosity and, he, and it never let go. At age 17, he became the youngest person ever to serve as director of observations for Vancouver's Royal Astronomical Society. With the help of a provincial scholarship and a National Research Council of Canada fellowship, he completed his undergraduate degree in physics at the University of British Columbia and graduate degrees in astronomy at the University of Toronto. The NRC also sent him to the United States for postdoctoral studies. At Caltech, he researched quasi-stellar objects, or quasars, some of the most distant and ancient objects in the universe. Not all of uh, Hugh's discoveries 
involved astrophysics. Prompted by curiosity, he studied the world's religions and holy books and found only one book that proved scientifically and historically accurate, the Bible. Hugh started at religious ground zero and through scientific and historical reality testing became convinced that the Bible is truly the word of God. And when he went on to describe for others his journey to faith in Jesus Christ, he was surprised to discover how many people believed or disbelieved without checking evidence. His unshakable confidence that God's revelations in scripture and nature do not, will not, and cannot contradict became his unique message. Wholeheartedly encouraged by family and friends, Communicating that message as broadly and clearly as possible became his mission. Thus, in 1986, he founded Science Faith Think Tank Reasons to Believe. He and his colleagues at RTB keep tabs on the frontiers of research to share with scientists and non-scientists alike the thrilling news of what's being discovered and how it connects with biblical theology. In this realm, he's written many books, including The Fingerprint of God, The Creator and the Cosmos, Beyond the Cosmos, The Genesis Question, A Matter of Days, Creation as Science, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, my favorite, and More Than a Theory. Dr. Hugh Ross, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. You are an old earth, a creationist. What does that mean exactly? That means that we interpret the creation days in Genesis 1 has six literal long periods of time, followed by a long period where God ceases from his miraculous creation activity. The Hebrew word yom is translated day in Genesis 1 as four different literal definitions. Part of the daylight hours, all of the daylight hours, a 24-hour period, or a long but finite period of time. And as we integrate all 27 creation accounts in the Bible, we find that only the long period of time interpretation allows you to read the entire Bible, both literally and consistently. There is, a, there is let's uh, call it for what it is, there is a huge schism uh, between those who are, like you, old earth creationists, uh, and those who are new earth creationists that take the Bible literally uh, and, and say that the, the earth is only on the order of um, six, seven thousand years old. What do you say to the, uh, to the, uh, the, uh, the new earth creationists? Well, I point out that uh, we are both taking the Bible literally. The real question is who is being consistent with all the creation accounts in the Bible. You know, and my main criticism of young earth creationists is they apparently only look at the Genesis creation accounts, we need to also pay attention to the creation accounts in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Romans, uh, Revelation. And when you do that, it seems clear that it must be long periods of time. I didn't meet young earth creationists until I was 28 years of age, but when I began to read the Bible at age 17, it never dawned on me that anyone would ever interpret these creation days as 24-hour periods. For one thing, I noticed there's no evening and morning for the seventh day. And so that told me we must still be in seventh day. And that made sense because we see all kinds of evidence scientifically for speciation events before humans show up, but it's very difficult to measure any at all after human beings show up. And for six days, God creates the seventh day. He stops, seem to explain that fossil record enigma. 
So it never occurred to me that uh, these days would be anything other than long periods of time. So uh, the Earth, or the, the universe rather, is uh, on the order of about 14 billion years old. Is that correct? That's correct. Did it begin with a Big Bang? Yes. I mean, that's one of the things that brought me to faith in Jesus Christ, is going through the Bible over an 18-month period and recognizing that 2,000, 3,000 years ago, it taught all the fundamental details of Big Bang cosmology. It uh, taught that there was a space-time beginning uh, for the universe, that the universe continuously expands from that beginning, expands under constant laws of physics, or one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay, and consequently the universe must get colder and colder at a highly predictable rate. And I recognize, too, at age 17 and 18, this was unique to the Bible until the 20th century. Not until the 20th century did any scientist even dream that we might be living in a continuously expanding universe that's traceable back to a space-time beginning. That was dramatic evidence for me that the Bible was accurately predicting future scientific discoveries. Dr. Hugh Ross is uh, with us, and uh, a little bit later in the program, we'll talk about, uh, well, a new booklet that uh, you've published. It's called Ten Breakthroughs of 10,010, Scientific Discoveries that Affirm uh, Creation. And um, we'll, we'll get into that as well as discuss how uh, the cosmos uh, appears to have been designed in anticipation of our arrival and how as vast as it is, as, as cold as it is, as cruel as it may seem, it's all here specifically for us. Dr. Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. In the darkness, the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740, or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Hugh Ross is with us. We're discussing science and the Bible, why the universe is uh, the way it is. We'll get to your phone calls a little bit later and also discuss 10 breakthroughs of 10,010 scientific discoveries that affirm creation. Uh, Dr. Ross, what is the difference uh, between progressive creation and evolution? Well, progressive creation actually includes these days a lot of uh, theistic evolutionists. Uh, So we've had to adopt a new term to describe our position, day-age creationism which is the idea that life has been here for 3.8 billion years on planet Earth, that it has uh, progressed uh, from simple to complex, but the progression does not happen through natural process evolution. It takes place through divine, miraculous interventions. As testified by the fossil record, where you see these numerous mass extinction events followed by mass speciation events where the species of life show up on the planet with optimized ecological relationships. Uh, but there's a debate running today about uh, whether or not uh, it's all miraculous process or if it's all natural process 
that's responsible for the history of life on the planet Earth. So you got the evolutionists and the theistic evolutionists on one side, and people like us, the age creationists, on the other side. So you are you saying then that uh, Charles Darwin was essentially correct? Uh, it's just that if you scratch sort of beneath the surface, you'll find a, a master creator who, who planned this evolutionary process. Well, Darwin was quite emphatic that he believed that it was all natural process because he said if God's responsible for it, how do you explain all these mass extinctions where life is being killed off and replaced? He thought that testified of a cruel God, therefore he rejected the idea that God was responsible for it. Uh, 150 years later, we recognize why God would remove life on the planet and replace it with new life. It's because the physics of the solar system changes, and that God regulates the atmosphere of the Earth and the chemistry of the surface of the Earth by ensuring we have the right life on the planet at the right time and the right abundance and the right diversity to perfectly compensate for all the changes that are taking place in the luminosity flowing out from the sun, uh, the slowing down of Earth's rotation rate, and the changing uh, radiation environment coming out of the crust of the Earth. Also taking into account the differences in the tidal interaction between the moon uh, and the Earth. So Darwin assumed everything was constant. We now know it's not constant. And since it's not constant, we need a God that frequently intervenes to guarantee that the wrong life is removed and replaced with the just right life. If... Uh, God was the uh, the engineer, the creator. Why would he take 13.7 billion years uh, to, to make this home and, and uh, for us to arrive on the scene? Well, he could have done it much faster, but it would have required different laws of physics. And, you know, when I debate uh, my physicists and astronomy friends who are not Christians, uh, they believe that if God's responsible for all this, then his only purpose for creating the universe is to make a home for humanity. And I would agree that's one purpose, but it's only one of over a dozen different reasons why God made the universe the way he did. And when you take into account those 12-plus reasons, we understand why God would choose a universe with gravity, electromagnetism, uh, three large dimensions of space accompanied by six small dimensions of space, why time must be linear, and, uh, you know, that's why you need the 13.73 billion years. It's the laws of physics that demand that it takes that much time. And why the universe is so, why is it so vast? If, if we are alone in the cosmos, I mean, when I say alone, I mean, I, I'm not including the supernatural, uh, you know, the angelic realm and, and so forth. Uh, but if we are alone and unique in the universe... Why did he have to make it so vast? Well, there's a growing consensus amongst astronomers and physicists that indeed we are alone in the context of intelligent life, and yet this universe that we observe has 50 billion trillion stars. But there's two very good reasons why it must be that vast. Uh, the mass of the universe acts as a catalyst that determines what elements are made in the early history of the universe. The universe starts off at near-infinitely high temperatures, and as it expands, it cools. And as it expands, it goes through a window of time when the universe is the temperature appropriate uh, to initiate nuclear fusion. 
where the hydrogen in the universe gets fused into helium and a few of the other lighter elements. And if the universe is too massive, it spends too much time during that fusion temperature window, and too many, too much of the hydrogen gets converted into helium and heavier elements, and once stars start forming, all the mass of the universe, ordinary matter, gets converted into elements heavier than iron. And in such a universe, you would have no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen, no phosphorus, and no possibility for life. Uh, that's why the universe isn't bigger than what we observe. But if it's slightly smaller, then the universe passes through that nuclear fusion window too quickly, and the only elements you'll ever get in the entire history of the universe would be nothing but hydrogen or hydrogen and a small amount of helium. And once again, you have a universe with no carbon, no oxygen, nitrogen, or any of the other elements that are essential for life. It must be exactly the mass that it is in order to get all the elements you need to make life chemistry possible. A second reason why it's as massive as it is, the mass of the universe is one of two physical factors that govern the expansion of the universe. I mean, the more mass you put into the universe, the slower the universe expands. And if it expands too slowly, then very soon the only stars you have in the universe are black holes and neutron stars. And there the densities are too extreme for atoms or molecules to be possible. But if the universe is less massive, then it expands so rapidly that stars don't form at all. And if you don't have stars, you're not going to have planets, you'll have no possible location where life can reside. So for two separate reasons, the universe must be extremely fine-tuned in terms of the mass it takes to make life possible. We're, we're a, a carbon-based life form, and yet uh, for those, uh, I find it interesting, uh, as you point out in why the universe is the way it is, uh, if there was an abundance of, you know, if, if the universe was teeming with other carbon-based life forms, there wouldn't be enough carbon to go around because it's actually quite rare, is it not? Well, carbon is certainly more rare than hydrogen and helium, but it is one of the more abundant um, elements in the universe. But one of the things we're discovering uh, when we are finding these planets outside of our solar system, what we call extrasolar planets, is the ones that are most like planet Earth are coming in at about 1,000 to 2,000 times more carbon than the Earth has. And so we're now realizing our planet Earth is extremely carbon poor as well as extremely water poor. Water is the second most abundant molecule in the universe. And I believe carbon comes in at number six in terms of abundance in the universe. And too much carbon means you're going to have a very heavy atmosphere that will make the operation of lungs impossible. It also will trap way too much heat from the sun. And too much water means you're never going to get continents appearing above the surface of the water. And without continents and oceans existing together, you will not have the nutrient recycling that's necessary to maintain advanced life. So everywhere we look, we're finding way too much carbon and way too much water. Earth, we have it just right. Further uh, evidence that the universe is such a finely tuned uh, place and it seems to be made just for us. We'll uh, continue to discuss this with Dr. Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe, and uh, we'll get to your calls as well at 416 360 
740 and 866-740-4740. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Uh, Dr. Ross, you point out in uh, 10 breakthroughs of 2010, scientific discoveries that affirm creation, uh, that 2010 was really a banner year for uh, paleoanthropologists. Uh, they discovered a number of new hominids uh, that, um, well, for example, in March of last year, a year ago, uh, scientists in Germany and Russia identified a new species of hominid that lived alongside Neanderthals. Uh, my wife is always correcting me. She's a, um, an archaeologist. She's saying it's Neanderthal, not Neanderthal. Anyway, Neanderthals, uh, they had a, a neighbor, uh, and they lived about thirty to 50,000 years ago. So these new uh, hominids that they are discovering, why is that an affirmation of creation rather than uh, of the naturalist uh, uh, perspective. Yeah, two of the articles we had in that uh, booklet talk about uh, finds in paleontology, and uh, it challenges the evolutionary paradigm in that we're getting the transitional forms showing up uh, after the supposed byproduct of the transitional form. So, for example, we're getting a hominid in Africa dating to be 3.6 million years old, that's five feet tall, fully bipedal. Uh, that's 400,000 years earlier uh, than the Lucy find, which is about three and a half feet tall and has very clumsy bipedal capability. So it's showing the fossil record out of order in terms of the evolutionary paradigm. Rather than going from primitive bipedalism to advanced bipedalism, we're seeing that it's the other way around. And rather than going from uh, a short stature to a to a, a tall stature, again, it's the other way around. And we're also seeing that for non-human life forms or, or non-ape-like uh, life forms, in the sense that, uh, you know, there's always been the textbook story that you start with fish, which evolves into fishopods, which evolve into true tetrapods, uh, land-dwelling animals that walk on all fours. Uh, but just this past year, they found a new fossil that dates 400 million years ago of a fully formed tetrapod, and uh, and yet the earliest fishapod we find comes in at about 375 million years ago. So 20 million years at least uh, before the uh, first fishapod, we have a fully formed tetrapod. So again, it's showing that the fossil record is the opposite of what the evolutionary paradigm would predict. From from, from creation perspective. I mean, when you look at uh, the Psalm 104, for example, it talks about how God creates life on Earth with the maximum abundance and maximum biodiversity so that the God can, as quickly as the laws of physics will permit that he's chosen, uh, endow future human beings with all the biodeposits they need to launch and sustain civilization. So with that model, you would have God aggressively creating life with great diversity uh, throughout the entire uh, history of life on planet Earth, at least at the level of diversity the laws of physics and the conditions of the solar system would permit at that time. And we're arguing that's exactly what the fossil records are revealing. Okay, so what does this mean for someone who believes uh, uh, that Adam and Eve were the first man and woman? 
Well, we're looking at these hominid creatures as akin to the great apes, like the gorilla or the chimpanzee, rather than to human beings. I mean, the most advanced of these hominids were uh, uh, Homo sapiens Neanderthal and uh, Homo sapiens Idaltu. But as you look at those two species, and you know they're dating around about uh, 30 to 35 to 150, 160,000 years ago. When you compare their culture with human culture, it's like night and day. None of these species wore clothes. Uh, we don't see them developing any kind of advanced tool structure. Uh, and over the course of 120,000 years, we don't see an advancement in their uh, tool technology. Uh, no evidence that they had musical instruments or had any kind of art expression. There is some evidence that Neanderthal may have opportunistically taken, taken advantage of uh, fires. And also, at least with Neanderthals, the European Neanderthals, they did overlap human beings uh, for at least 10,000 years. And so there is some evidence that, kind of like monkeys today, they steal our stuff. And so uh, it's possible that they were taking advantage of a certain uh, human finds, not that they were able to use them. It's kind of like uh, apes today. They steal our stuff, but they don't know how to use the stuff that they steal. Now, um, I, I, perhaps I was I misinformed, um, but I always thought that they've been discovering that Neanderthals perhaps are more advanced than previously thought. In, in fact, didn't, didn't they bury their dead? Well, what they're finding are Neanderthal bones that are within 20, 30 feet of uh, flower pollen, and therefore they're presuming that there is a burial ceremony. Well, there's more than one way to interpret the data. Uh, just because you've got flower pollen and uh, various kinds of food seeds in the same vicinity as Neanderthal bones doesn't mean they were having an elaborate worship service. Whereas as soon as you get the first human showing up, you immediately see that they're being engaging in uh, worship and uh, various kinds of ceremonies. Uh, you see them uh, carving figurines uh, that were clearly used uh, for worship purposes. Uh, we don't see that for the Neanderthals. What does that mean that the, the, the Neanderthals, the, the Cro-Magnum man, they didn't have spirit? Well, Cro-Magnon is a term that's fallen out of use because we now realize Cro-Magnons were fully human. That was a term used to describe humans that uh, you know, lived 10, 20, 30,000 years ago. Uh, the DNA dating tells us that the first man and the first woman lived about 50 to 60, possibly as much as 70,000 years ago. Uh, the cultural big bangs are coming in at about 40 to 50,000 years ago and a calibration we developed at the biblical genealogy since Genesis 5 and 11 uh, put Adam and Eve at about 60,000 years ago. So uh, this is a little bit of a pushback from uh, dates of, say, six to 10,000 years uh, that were popular oh, 100, 200 years ago. So uh, in that context, uh, we realize that, that we can explain the archaeological data that we're, we're discovering. But that's one thing you do see in the archaeological finds. As soon as humans show up, you find jewelry, you find clothing, you find musical instruments, art expression, uh, religious ceremonies, and it shows up explosively, just comes out of, out of everywhere. And moreover, once humans come upon the scene, you notice their culture advances rapidly generation to generation. That's something you don't see in the hominid finds. Were Adam and Eve 
uh, were they re- reformed uh, Neanderthals or were they created out of whole cloth? Uh, how did God create Adam and Eve? Well, the Bible tells us that he made Adam and Eve differently, that he made Adam from the dust of the earth. Uh, the text uses three different Hebrew verbs, which all would uh, require that he did so miraculously. And with respect to Eve, it says God took a biopsy from Adam's side, which meant God had a DNA template from Adam and evidently re-engineered that uh, template uh, to make this new creature uh, Eve. So evidently, uh, God had two different means uh, for making the first man and the first woman, but both uh, would have um, meant supernatural intervention, as is not God working behind the scenes through the natural process. All right, uh, Dr. Ross, when we come back, we'll find out uh, where the location of the Garden of Eden is, and uh, many, many other questions remain. Why the universe is the way it is. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. All right, let's work uh, Michael from the beaches into the conversation. Good evening, Michael. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show at AM 740. Yes, uh, good evening, uh, Richard and uh, Hugh Ross. Okay, just a general comment first. I agree with most people that the universe is probably, you know, at least a million years old. Uh, you know, I, it doesn't matter to me if it was created in six days or a million years or whatever. But 13.7 billion, actually, Michael, is uh, what most scientists and agree I heard 4.4 billion as well. So That's any- the Earth, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, but I have a couple of comments. First of all, I have heard that the old Earth progressive creationists believe that the flood, Noah's flood, was local and in one area. That's interesting because other stories tell about similar floods in their areas of the world. And then uh, the whole story of Adam and Eve, you know, where did God put Adam and Eve and did sin have an origin? Let's get to the uh, the the, uh, the the flood uh, legend first. Great call uh, and questions, Michael and the beaches. Thank you for that, uh, Doctor Hugh Ross. Uh, Michael uh, alludes to there are so many uh, cultures um, around the world that have this uh, flood story. Uh, many of them involving some sort of a, a, a an ark and animals and, and a surviving family and so forth. Uh, was the flood global or was it localized to say uh, the uh, you know the Middle Eastern uh, area? Well, Michael is right. I mean, in a, over 150 different cultures of the world, you'll find a flood uh, legend. And, uh, you know, the DNA evidence shows that humanity started off in one location on planet Earth. In fact, we get a good idea where that location was. But then there was a brief period of very rapid migration in which uh, humans got spread out over the whole of the world and evidently they took their flood stories with them. And I've done a study of this. The farther you get from, say, the Persian Gulf, uh, in terms of geography and time, the more distorted the flood stories become with respect to what you see in the Bible. And I would argue the Bible teaches a worldwide flood, but not a global flood. 
It's interesting when you go through the Bible, look up all the accounts where it refers to worldwide events. In every single case, it's much less than the entire planet. And I'll give you a good example. It tells us the kings and queens of the whole world came to Solomon to hear his wisdom. But right in the text there, it tells you they came from as far away as southern Arabia and Ethiopia. That's not Australia. That's not Peru. The whole world of Solomon uh, was about 1,500 miles out from Jerusalem. Likewise, you've got the Apostle Paul in the New Testament saying of the Roman Christians, your faith has been heard throughout the whole world. He meant the Roman world. He wasn't referring to the Aztecs in uh, Mexico. And likewise, that same uh, Peter contrasts the world of the ungodly that was wiped out by the flood with the world of the Romans, and says the world at the time the event took place, Cosmos Tote in first, Second Peter 3, uh, was destroyed by the flood. And so the flood wiped out all of humanity, except for those on board the ark, wiped out all the birds and mammals associated with humanity, except those on board the ark, but it was not global in extent. And in terms of where we think the Garden of Eden is, where Adam and Eve started, just a few weeks ago, an archaeologist announced his discovery of 60 ancient villages that surround the Persian Gulf and therefore concludes that this is evidence that there was uh, a dry period where the Persian Gulf uh, was essentially dry. And we know that's the case at the end of the last ice age. So with these slightly earlier dates for the first man and the first woman coming in at, say, fifty to 60,000 years ago, that's when most of the Persian Gulf was dry, and it answers a big question that uh, Christians have had about the Garden of Eden, because it tells us four rivers come together in the Garden of Eden, the Tigris, the Euphrates, the Gihon, and the Pishon. Tigris and Euphrates flow through Mesopotamia. The Gihon and the Pishon flow through southern Arabia. They all come together in what is now the southeastern portion of the Persian Gulf. So that's where we believe the Garden of Eden is, and the flood of Noah would have flooded all of the Persian Gulf. Uh, all of Mesopotamia and a good chunk of southern Arabia, but it wasn't global in extent. Let's go back. Fact, to... We know it can't be global because Psalm 104 talks about how God creates the continents. And once the continents are in place, Psalm 104, verse 9, never again will water cover the whole face of the earth. So that would rule out the possibility that Noah's flood was global in extent. You mentioned the the formation of continents, which brings us to, uh, again, one of the discoveries that's mentioned in 10 Breakthroughs of 2010. Earth sets the standard for life-friendly tectonics. Now, before we get to that, we can't talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, tectonics without talking about the absolute horror that's uh, just uh, taken place in Japan and uh, earthquakes. And, and, and uh, this is a question, obviously, that comes up time and time again. Why would an all-loving God do uh, allow what happened to Japan to happen? Well, it's thanks to earthquake activity that we get continents forming. It's thanks to earthquake activity we get nutrients recycling. And what we see is that the earthquake activity was far more intense in the past. And so God waits until that earthquake activity subsides to put human beings on the face of the earth. He also designed the earth in such a way 
that at the major subduction zones, and that's where you get your biggest earthquakes, is that the water has a certain temperature and density so that it can chemically react with the basalts at the bottom of the ocean floor to make talc. And that talc acts as a lubricant to lessen the earthquake uh, you know, intensity. And so because of the way the Earth is designed, we can actually have human beings residing on the planet and even building cities and transportation arteries. Yes, we get earthquakes, but they're not so intense or so numerous that uh, we can't develop a civilization. And uh, I'd hats off to the Japanese. They prepare for earthquakes. We here in North America need to do a much better job because we are at risk just like the Japanese. The same kind of subduction earthquake could easily happen off the coast of British Columbia, Washington, and Oregon. And given the lack of preparation, we could see Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland literally leveled to the ground. We need to take a lesson from the Japanese and get ready for what we know inevitably will happen. Uh, when we see these uh, natural disasters uh, or s- any cataclysmic event, uh, you have, regrettably, I think, uh, you, fundamentalists, and they exist uh, in, 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 in all faiths, of course, but you have uh, fundamentalists who say that that was God's wrath for some transgression, some sin. Uh, does God operate that way? No, I don't think so. <clears throat> uh, we do notice, however, that he created the universe with certain laws of physics, gravity, electromagnetism, thermodynamics, the space-time dimensions, and uh, those uh, attributes of physics are optimally designed to deal with the problem of human evil and sin. Uh, but those laws of physics also mean you're going to get tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, wildfires, And as we look at each of those kinds of, quote, natural disasters, we realize they're optimized. We need fires to re-nourish the soil. Uh, So we wouldn't be able to grow the crops that we could grow if we don't have regular grass and forest fires taking place at different points in the world. We need hurricanes to act as a thermostat to regulate the temperature of the ocean and to recycle chlorophyll. As you've already heard me say, we need earthquakes and volcanic activity Uh, to recycle the nutrients and to make sure that the continent building is uh, sufficient to overcome the erosion forces that are wearing down the continents. Everything is just right. And God could step in and supernaturally intervene to protect us from the consequences of these natural disasters, and the Bible tells us he has done so, but only on rare occasions. If he were to do it all the time, then we would lose the benefit of these laws of physics in restraining the expression of human sin and evil. As it tells us in the Bible, God allows us to happen to both the righteous and the uh, uh, wicked, and therefore we're not to look at who gets hurt by these things as any indication of who is the more righteous or who is the greater sinner. This is all in place because it's part of God's plan to permanently rid his creation of all evil and suffering, and the moment he does, he'll replace his universe with all of its physics with a brand new creation where never again will you have gravity, electromagnetism, the law of decay, thermodynamics, that'll all be gone, they'll all be replaced with brand new physics, and in that creation, there'll never again be earthquakes, tornadoes, fires, anything like that. Don't need it, need it, because that's the place where evil will never exist again.
Uh, I think also a lot of people equate suffering with sin, and they're, they're not the same, are they? They're not the same. Uh, you know, evil and suffering are very different. Suffering is a natural outcome of the laws of physics, and that we all suffer. And matter of fact, the suffering is necessary to prepare us for the new creation. The analogy I use in why the universe is the way it is is what you go through when you attend university. Uh, you take courses where you suffer at the hand of the professors, and you want the suffering because you realize it's only through the suffering of these difficult courses that you can get prepared for a rewarding career. Well, we need to realize God is preparing us for very rewarding, fulfilling, but challenging careers in the new creation, and we have to go to college. And that's what life here on planet Earth is all about. We're here for a few decades to get trained and equipped for future roles in a new creation. That's why we have to be exposed to the uh, suffering. It also is why we have to be exposed briefly uh, to the evil that certain people choose to commit. Something that's always uh, confused me, and and quite frankly, I don't know how to respond when people say, you look at the God that's described in the Old Testament. He seems rather wrathful, vengeful, sometimes even jealous, uh, you know, ordering the, uh, the Israelites to smite an entire village, including every man, woman, and child. How do you reconcile that with the, the loving, just God of the New Testament? Well, this was addressed by Jesus himself, and he made the point, God hasn't changed. It's people that have changed. What he told his disciples is that once he was raised bodily from the dead, the Holy Spirit would come upon his followers and make them the salt of the earth, make them a preservative that would prevent societal reprobation. So the reason why God had entire villages and cities uh, wiped out in Old Testament periods is because that was an era where you had societal reprobation. A good example of that was the city of Sodom where it tells us that every man, young and old, came to Lot's door to commit homosexual rape against his two male visitors. That has never happened in the New Testament era. Yes, we've had individuals that are like that, but there's never been an entire village, town, or nation that has fallen to that degree of degradation. And that's why God doesn't wipe out whole villages and cities today, because that kind of... uh, pervasive evil cancer uh, doesn't get to that extent. And that's because we have followers of Jesus Christ that act as a preservative, preventing uh, evil to spread to that degree. I'm wondering whether in uh, some of these cases, and I also I, I go back to the, uh, the flood and, and uh, the reason for the flood, I'm wondering about, uh, there's a, several passages in the Bible uh, and one in the book of Enoch uh, that describes uh, the, uh, the, the, the fallen angels uh, commingling with the daughters of men, producing a race of, uh, of giants. Uh, I think they were referred to as the Nephilim. I'm wondering if, for, for one, the, the, the flood was God's remedy to that. He was cleansing the gene pool, if you will. Uh, and two, whether when God ordered the Israelites and, and others to smite an entire village, the, the, the individuals that were being destroyed were, in fact, Nephilim. Uh, that, you're, you're right on target. I mean, I do believe that's one reason for the flood. Uh, there was this uh, 
race of, uh, uh, I don't know what you would call them, but you know, the most common explanation for that passage in Genesis 6-3 is that fallen angels committed to their evil ways came down to the earth and had physical intercourse with the daughters of men, and they gave rise to these hybrids. And uh, what we see in the text is evidently they were all male, they're all very tall and incredibly evil. And so the flood was designed to wipe out the, those hybrids and protect the gene pool of the human species. But the text says they came back. Evidently, these uh, sons of God, angelic beings, came back and did it again, but on a more limited scale. And uh, so one of the purposes for God raising up Moses and the Israelites and David and his mighty men was to wipe out the last of the Nephilim. And so we see an account in Samuel where David's mighty men uh, literally destroy the last of the Nephilim. And since that time, 3,000 years ago, there's been no evidence of that existing. And the book of Jude explains why. It refers to these angels that left their estate. And if you look at that in the Greek, that's a reference to bestiality. And it says those angels that left their estate were committed to the abyss. And evidently the abyss is such a terrifying prison that it keeps these demons in check from doing it again. All right, another time out back on the other side with Dr. Hugh Ross as we discuss 10 breakthroughs of 2010, scientific discoveries that affirm creation. Questions and comments welcome. You can challenge Dr. Ross if you'd like in a respectful, cordial manner, of course. 416-360-0740. And toll free from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, 866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Dr. Hugh Ross is with us from Reasons to Believe, and uh, the website is www.reasons.org. We've linked up to his website at richardserrett.com. Just go to my homepage and click on Hugh Ross right there on... uh, under tonight's show, and that'll take you right to reasons.org. And if you're, if this is the kind of conversation that you really enjoy, uh, you'd uh, be very thrilled to know that uh, there's going to be uh, an Alaska cruise conference from uh, July 30th to August the 6th, 2011, uh, with reasons to believe. And I'm guessing that a lot of this type of conversation will be taking place um, amidst the uh, the spectacular sunsets and uh, uh, unbelievable scenery as you cruise up the Inner Passage in Alaska. And you can find out more at reasons.org. And uh, Dr. Ross, I'm guessing you're going to be part of that cruise as well? Uh, I am, as well as the rest of our Reasons to Believe scholar team. And uh, you'll be hearing lectures one or two times a day throughout the entire cruise. And there'll be all kinds of time for discussion. We literally talk all day long about these things. Oh, I could, I could, uh, I could listen all day long. Uh, what do you make of? Um, let me before I get to the. I want to ask you about UFOs, uh, but before I do that, is it man's destiny uh, to travel to the stars? Well, there's a limit to how far we can go, regardless of technological advance, just because of the vastness of uh, the interstellar distances. Uh, exploring our solar system is certainly within the feasibility of uh, human beings. Uh, getting to the nearest stars would be an 
a bigger challenge. After all, the nearest star is four and a quarter light years away. Uh, so you're looking, and you can't really move through outer space at more than about 1% of the velocity of light. If you do, uh, you wind up destroying the craft and the life on board. And so uh, you're looking at uh, you know, literally thousands of years to cross interstellar space. And the problem with that is uh, scientists calculate the maximum longevity for a civilization at our current level of technology can't be longer than one or 2,000 years. So the, light, the travel time is literally exceeding the longevity of the technological advancement you need to sustain such a trip. Plus the fact it's difficult to keep people psychologically sound when they're on board a small craft for a long period of time. Let's suppose uh, that uh, mankind were to survive to become a, a, a level two or a level three type civilization, uh, and that we are able to, you know, virtually harness the power of the sun uh, or uh, learn how to utilize wormholes or uh, in in order to to in fact travel to the stars or or to achieve uh, something close to. Uh, to um, uh, light speed. Is there a prohibition, though, uh, um, of God's will to, uh, let's say we wanted to, to uh, let's say, we, f- for example, a smaller step, we want to colonize Mars. Is that, is that possible? Is that in God's plan? Well, God is not saying you can't do that. Uh, so God's not saying no, but I'm wondering if the laws of physics aren't saying no. Um, it'd be much easier to establish a colony on the moon than it would Mars. And I'm wondering, what is it that we would be learning on Mars that we couldn't learn on the moon? I mean, I think the big motivation is to discover some insights on the origin of life. There's far more Earth-transported material on the surface of the moon than there is on Mars. And what I like about going to the moon we know that the fossils of Earth's first life are present on the moon in pristine form. They're not here on the Earth. The geology of the Earth has destroyed them. So I'm all in favor of going to the moon to find the fossils of Earth's first life and see who's right and who's wrong about the origin of life. Uh, I've been on record as promoting that for at least uh, 15 years now. And to do the same thing on Mars, it could be done, but it's much more challenging and far more expensive Moreover, we have no guarantee we can get people to Mars and back uh, without killing them. Kim is in Toronto. Good evening, Kim. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show at AM740. You're on the line with Dr. Hugh Ross. Thank you. Hi, Richard. How are you tonight? I'm well, thank you. Uh, Nice to be on your show. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to uh, make a comment uh, regarding your conversation on the Great Flood and uh, quoting uh, things from the Bible there. Um, first, in Genesis, it does say that uh, Lord God has created Adam and Eve, and that that is his creation and not the creation of God. And I interpret that as being that Lord God is a different entity uh, than God, and where it states that Lord God looks up to the heavens and sees the sons of God coming to earth to mate with the females, these females are the creation of Lord God. And Lord God is powerless over the sons of God, being a more, what I interpret to be a more um, powerful entity, and the sons of God are more powerful than the Lord God. And he decides, it states in 
Genesis that that's when he decides to create the great flood to destroy his own creation, which is the only way it decides that it can get rid of the sons of God. Um, and uh, the minor point being, I think it also states that the humans at that time were beginning to reproduce uh, beyond the Lord God's ability to keep a correct census of the number of births. Uh, that was a minor point, though, but in the Bible, uh, when it does uh, destroy its own creation by the flood, it is, in fact, the main purpose to get rid of the sons of God. So I, I like to just comment that I think Lord God and God are actually two different entities. That's interesting, uh, That's uh, Kim. very important in the whole scheme of other aliens and other gods. Ah, and okay, gods let's get Dr. Hugh Ross's comment on that. obviously involved with different human creations. Okay, Kim, let me get Dr. Ross's uh, uh, response to that, because that's fascinating. The Lord God, well, well, is that Kim, different from God, uh, Dr. Ross? Well, Kim is on, uh, he's right in one context. In Genesis 1, it uses the Hebrew word Elohim for God, and then you got uh, Yahweh in uh, Genesis uh, 2. Uh, but those two names are used for God repeatedly throughout the entire Old Testament. In fact, if you go through the Old Testament, you can count over a hundred different names for God, and the reason for those different names are to describe the attributes of God. And I think what's particularly insightful about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it's using names for God to teach the doctrine of the Trinity. Elohim means the uni-plural one. So right there in Genesis 1, it's emphasizing uh, the triunity of God. I mean, you see that when it talks about the God creating human beings. It says, let us create. And then it says, so God created him. So it's using a singular pronoun for God, and one sentence later, it's using a plural pronoun for God, emphasizing the uni-plural one in the name Elohim. But in Genesis 2, it's trying to make the point about God's authority over humanity and its capacity to dispense authority to Adam and Eve to manage the planet. So it purposely uses a different name for God. But it's one and the same uh, God. And I do agree with Kim that one purpose of the flood was to wipe out the Nephilim, uh, the hybrids from the intercourse between the sons of God and the daughters of men, but it wasn't the only purpose. God was also wiping out reprobate humanity and preserving the one family that had not yet gotten infected with that uh, reprobate uh, behavior, uh, Noah and his family, and rebuilt the human species uh, from that, but also shortened lifespans. I think part of what was going on before the flood is teaching humanity a lesson. It's not good to live a long time. If we all live a long time, it shifts the advantage towards the wicked away from the righteous, and the wicked start slaughtering uh, the uh, righteous. So God shortened human lifespans so that that uh, wouldn't happen again. In fact, we argue that at least 19 of the 20 people were dying as a result of murder in the days before the flood, and that's why the human population didn't get to be very large until after the flood. Kim, thank you for the call and, and the, uh, the great uh, questions and comments. Uh, what about uh, the, the, uh, the developments in life-prolonging technologies? I mean, we, uh, Dr. Ross, we, we may, by all accounts, when you look at adult stem cell therapy and, and, and so forth, be on the cusp of virtual immortality or the, the potential for virtual immortality. What do you make of that? Well, I was in uh, Toronto just a few days ago, and I saw a big billboard there that said two-thirds of the 
total human population that has ever lived past age 65 is alive today. I mean, we are living a lot longer than we were even 50 years ago. Um, and yes, uh, I think there's going to be even bigger advances in extending human lifespan, but there's a limit. The limit is telomerase activity. As we continue to age, our chromosomes get shorter and shorter, and eventually they get so short it forces death upon us. But that doesn't happen until we're about 120 years old. But that's exactly what you see in Genesis uh, 6, uh, 2 through 4, that God stepped in and shortened the maximum lifespan of humanity to no more than about 120 years, and we now realize it's the biochemistry of our chromosomes that sets that upper limit. But it wouldn't surprise me that advancing medical technology will raise the average lifespan of human beings to 100 years. I could see that happening easily. Uh, Several years ago, the director of the Vatican Observatory in Arizona made quite a startling, remarkable pronouncement that it was okay uh, for Catholics, and I guess by extension for Christians, to believe uh, in, uh, in life elsewhere in the universe, uh, to believe in extraterrestrials. What do you think of that? And secondly, what is your, your feeling about the entire UFO phenomenon? Well, I think uh, Guy Consolmagno is right that, uh, you know, from a biblical perspective, the door is open as to whether you believe that life is restricted to planet Earth or whether it could be elsewhere within the universe. And for sure, we know the remains of life are going to be found on all solar system bodies if for no other reason Earth's been efficiently exporting the remains of its life throughout the solar system. So it's simply a matter of time before we find evidence for life on Mars, the Moon, and elsewhere. But it's Earth-transported life. Several years ago, I actually sponsored a project at Reasons to Believe by three of us astronomers on this very question of life elsewhere in the universe. One of us defended the view that Earth is alone in terms of uh, created life. And uh, we had another astronomer defend the view that uh, God has created life all of our Milky Way galaxy and maybe other galaxies. Uh, And then another astronomer weighed in and said, well, maybe primitive life on other planets, but not advanced life. But all of us agreed, based on what we see in uh, Hebrews, and also what we see in terms of these extrasolar planets, that life, human life, that is spiritual in nature, would be unique to planet Earth. So there may be dolphins on another planet, but we're not going to find uh, creatures like us that are body, uh, soul, and spirit. But from a Christian perspective, there's quite a bit of room to speculate. Uh, UFOs, I've been studying UFOs since I was 16. I was kind of forced into it uh, when I was in Vancouver uh, in charge of the observing group there of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. And every year, at my uh, encouragement, we had a booth at the Pacific National Exhibition And one year they put us right next to the Flying Saucer Club. So that started my career in investigating UFOs. And I wound up writing a book on it called Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men. And the thing that I notice is that if you study the UFO phenomena, uh, they have the greatest incidence of UFO sightings uh, in terms of per capita sightings in in a particular region at 3 o'clock in the morning on lonely country roads. And where do astronomers hang out? 
Well, they're the ones that are hanging out at lonely country roads at 3 a.m. in the morning watching the skies, and yet very few astronomers report sighting UFOs. But it's not zero. I've actually met astronomers that have had encounters with UFOs, but the only astronomers I've met that have had these encounters are astronomers who have been deep into occult activity. And what I wrote in my book is there's a direct correlation between the degree of occult activity and the number of close encounters with UFOs. And I say close encounters because the vast majority of what people report as UFOs can be explained as natural phenomena, military aircraft, or hoaxes by engineering students, for example. That accounts for about 99% of everything that people report as UFOs. But there's a 1% residual, and these are typically the close encounters. And uh, there again, you see that proportion, and to me it's a testable hypothesis. If you get rid of the occult activity in your life, that will be the end of close encounters with the UFOs. And so if you don't believe me, put it to the test. And in the book, I have a list of everything that qualifies as occult activity, how to get that out of your life. I also show the statistics. Nations with the highest degree of occult activity have the highest number of UFO sightings being reported. That's fascinating. Are you, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean, I have my own theory that, uh, that has been evolving, if I can use that term, in this context uh, over the years. Uh, and that has to do with, uh, well, let me just say it. I believe that ETs are not extraterrestrial. They are, in fact, interdimensional. And what we are talking about here, when we're talking about the UFO phenomena, more than likely is um, something from the angelic realm, uh, but I'm talking about more along the lines of the demonic uh, what are your no, thoughts I on totally that? I totally agree with that. That's why I say that, that that explains the connection with the occult. The occult is a way you open up yourself to invite demons to invade your life. And they can invade in many forms. And what's interesting about the UFO phenomena, it evolves with human technology. You know, 100 years ago, they were coming as dirigibles. 50 years ago, they were coming as fast-moving uh, aircraft. Now they're showing up at about 25,000 miles per hour. And what they're telling us about the universe also keeps space with human technology. The story 100 years ago was that these UFO beings were from the backside of the moon. Now that we realize that that's an impossible site for life, they changed their story and said they were from Mars, then the moons of Jupiter. Now they're claiming to be from some extrasolar planetary system. So the fact that the story changes and the technology changes in terms of the way they manifest themselves is a good clue we're dealing with these uh, fallen angels, not with real physical craft. I mean, one thing I document in my book is that these close-encounter UFOs violate the laws of physics. The fact that they violate the laws of physics tells us that uh, these beings are not from our dimensional realm. They're from another dimensional realm, and it tells us in the Bible that angels are intelligent, spiritual beings, but unlike us, they can come into our dimensional realm and they can leave, and they can take any form that they wish to take. They can appear as a leprechaun, they can appear as an animal, uh, they can appear as a flying saucer. Uh, whatever works to deceive the human being, they're prepared to make it happen.
Uh, Jesus uh, said uh, something to the effect that in the end times it will be as it was in the times of, of, of Noah. Uh, so I hearken back to the, uh, you know, the, the contamination of the gene pool brought about by the, uh, the fallen angels commingling with the daughters of men, creating this breed of demonic Nephilim. So is, if, if we look at the abduction phenomenon as that commingling uh, you know, of, of uh, demonic entities with the daughters and sons of man, it, it's sort of, there is a parallel there. I mean, because people often in the abduction uh, field talk about some sort of alien-human hybrid program going on. What are your thoughts well, on I've that? I've heard those stories as well. I mean, in interviewing people where they claim to have been sexually molested uh, by these uh, beings. But in, in modern time, there is no evidence of any kind of physical intercourse, like transmission of semen. I don't doubt that these people are having experiences. I'm just not sure they're physical experiences. All right. We'll take another time out. We'll come back. We'll get to uh, another Hugh, this one in Scarborough, Arthur, uh, and uh, others. If you've got a line, hold on to it. We will get to your call as we continue to discuss why the universe is the way it is, science and the Bible, and scientific discoveries that affirm creation with Dr. Hugh Ross here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Show with Richard Serrett from Zuna Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free 1 866 740 4740. Just a reminder next Friday, that's March the 25th, 11 p.m., Vision TV, The Conspiracy Show, the first episode. We'll deal with the uh, central banking conspiracy, some call it. And the second episode, we'll deal with the Rendlesham UFO incident that occurred uh, uh, near the U.S. Air Force Base in Bentwaters and Woodbridge in uh, southern England back in uh, 1980. That's uh, coming up on Vision TV, The Conspiracy Show, Friday nights starting at 11 p.m. Eastern. And also a reminder that The Conspiracy Show website theconspiracyshow.com is now online, so please visit, check it out. It is a work in progress, and uh, we look forward to your comments. Dr. Hugh Ross stays with us. Uh, let's get right back to the phones. Hugh is in Scarborough. Good morning, Hugh. Hello. How are you? Well, thank you. your show. I appreciate it. Thank you. I have a very small question. How did God come into existence? All right, short and sweet, but that's one of the biggies, Dr. Uh, Ross. Yes, it's been perpetually a biggie. If God created the universe, who created God? Today we have space-time theorems that tell us that if the universe contains mass, if it continuously expands, then it must be traceable back to a beginning, not just of matter and energy, but space and time itself. 
and there must be a causal agent beyond space and time that creates this universe of matter, energy, space, and time. Now, time, by definition, is that dimension or realm in which cause and effect phenomena take place. So the fact that the creation of the universe is the creation of cosmic time tells us that the creator of the universe, at a minimum, must have access to operate in the equivalent of two dimensions of time. And if time is a plane, you can have an infinite number of lines in that plane running in an infinite number of directions. So you could conceive, for example, the timeline of our universe and God dwelling on another timeline or an infinite number of timelines that never cross or touch the timeline of our universe, as such that God would have no beginning, no ending, and would be uncreated. And when I was going through the different holy books of the religions of the world in my late teens, I noticed only the Bible said of God that he has no beginning, no ending, and is uncreated. It's also the only holy book that says that God can arbitrarily compress time in our context or expand it. A day of the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day, a thousand years is like a watch in the night. That's only mathematically possible for a being who has the capability of working through cause and effect in at least two dimensions of time. So that explains why the universe must have a beginning, explains why everything in the universe ultimately must be created, but God doesn't need to be a created entity. He has no beginning, no ending. He's eternal, infinitely in the past and infinitely in the future. He is the author of time. He can create space-time dimensions at will and remove them at will. And we now have proof of that uh, through these space-time theorems. Uh, Dr. Ross, you describe how the the universe uh, appears to be especially created for our arrival, although it took 13.7 billion years to uh, to unfold. Uh, and, And here we are at this unique point in history, and we arrive at the perfect time in history. Uh, and we can get into that in a moment. But what I, I guess what I'm getting at is I get that why someone like you having – when you look through your telescope or when you examine the science, you, be, you, you would believe in a creator. But I guess my question is so why aren't you just simply a deist who believes that God uh, created this thing, you know, uh, put this clock in motion and uh, basically stepped back and watched it unfold? Why aren't you a deist instead of being a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Well, that's one place where I think scientists have a consensus, is that clearly there's a need for something supernatural to explain the beginning of the universe. And many of my colleagues do take a deistic perspective uh, on the universe and life. I don't, because I see evidences that the God that intervened to make the universe also chose to intervene many times thereafter. There is no natural explanation for the origin of life. And then you see in the Bible three origins of life. The origin of purely physical life, that was 3.8 billion years ago. The origin of birds and mammals, 100 to 150 million years ago. And then the origin of human beings that are body, soul, and spirit. And that raises a question. If the universe is purely physical, how do we get soulish creatures coming from that which is only physical, and for human beings. How can the non-spiritual create the spiritual? How can the non-personal create the personal? 
One of the things we see in science is that effects are always lesser than the causes. Yet if you take a view that uh, it's deism, then you've got a problem because now you've got effects that are bigger than the causes and bigger in a dramatic way. As I look at the fossil record, as I look at how Earth formed and got all of its unique characteristics to make advanced life possible, it's a God that's constantly intervening to make sure that he gets exactly the outcome he wants. I would also argue that's a far more efficient way to create, and we create by that pattern. You know, We don't kind of put it all together in the beginning and let it all unfold. We could do that, but that's a far more a difficult task, a much more efficient way to create is to set it up with all the ingredients in the beginning and then step in and actually uh, intervene to manufacture or construct the product that you want. And that's what we see in the history of the universe and the history of life on Earth. All right. Arthur's in Toronto. Good morning, Arthur. You're on the line with Dr. Hugh Ross. Go ahead. Good morning. So many questions, so many answers, of course. It's almost impossible to get them in one sentence. But anyway, I'll try. One listener said, that Lord God and God are two separate persons. Well, Lord is not a name, it's a title. Just as we say today, the Lord, Justice of the Peace, we're talking about his position. His name is Jehovah, as far as we know. Correct, correct, correct. If that's correct pronunciation, Yahweh, or when we say hallelujah, means praise Jehovah. All right, Arthur, uh, did you have a specific question? All right, we'll move along. Thank you for that uh, clarification, Arthur. Uh, let's move along to Alec in Scarborough. Alec, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, one second. We've got two people locked in there at the same time. There we go. Okay, Alec, turn your radio off and fire away. Uh, I'd like to ask Dr. Ross, who are the three people in history that have most influenced him? I'll hang up now. Thank, Thank you. you, Alec. All right, Dr. Hugh? Well, I mean, uh, Jesus Christ uh, would be at the top of the list, the Apostle Paul, and uh, then King David. I mean, uh, you know, two men with very different characters, but I love the way they responded to God in their life. And I've learned a lot, a lot from them. I've just finished writing a book, it's not yet published, on Job. He's another one that stands out in terms of his humility and wisdom. So... Those would be my three if you want to uh, take Jesus Christ off the list since he's God as well as man. Oh, I, uh, and where does Isaac Newton and uh, Stephen Hawking and, and the like fit, fit in to your list? Well, I mean, yeah, ever since I was seven years of age, I've been reading the works of uh, the great scientists. And of all the scientists I've read, I think the one I really admire a lot is James Clark Maxwell. He didn't live that long. Uh, but boy, he set everything up for 20th century science. And uh, yes, I mean, you mentioned Einstein, he's up there, Isaac Newton, uh, Michael Faraday is right there. Uh, but, you know, Faraday and uh, um, uh, Clark Maxwell, James Clark Maxwell, were not only outstanding physicists, the leading physicists of their day, and opened up many new disciplines, uh, subdisciplines within physics. I also admire them for their remarkable faith in Jesus Christ. And Newton uh, was absolutely, uh, I mean, he was very passionate about the, the Bible. Uh, he was, he was he also into biblical... He the Bible than he did physics. You're mm-hmm. right. And he was, he was absolutely, 
I, I don't know if, if obsessed is the right word, but by biblical prophecy, was he not? He was. Uh, he was also the first to lay out in writing the day-age interpretation of Genesis 1, and actually communicated that uh, interpretation to the, uh, uh, the chaplain of the royal court. So, uh, and I was amazed reading his uh, works on the Genesis to see how close it is to what theologians think about Genesis today. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk to you about uh, biblical prophecy and uh, end times uh, prophecy. Uh, I get your take on that. And um, many, many other questions remain. Dr. Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe. We're talking about scientific discoveries that affirm creation. We'll get to more of your calls as well at 416-360-0740 and toll-free from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, 866-744-740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Dr. Hugh Ross stays with us for the duration, and uh, we're thankful uh, for it. Uh, Dr. Ross, the timing uh, for when mankind came on the scene. Uh, talk to me about the timing in terms of what's happening in the heavens. I mean, as an astronomer, uh, the unique perspective that we have uh, being able to, uh, to observe the night skies and what that means. Well, in terms of the future, a number of uh, astronomers have written that the universe cannot sustain uh, human life for much longer. I mean, we're looking at the sun getting brighter and brighter as it gets older and older, and that within a few million years, we're not going to be able to sustain the photosynthetic activity that we currently have on the Earth, and that will lead to the demise of the human species. We look at the physics of the sun and see, too, that uh, it's extremely stable luminosity phase within a few tens of thousands of years will come to an end. If we continue to sustain our high level of, of uh, technology, that's going to lower our birth rate and uh, cause a, a great advance in the production of deleterious or harmful mutations, which is why uh, people have been concluding the level of technology we're currently sustaining can't be sustained for more than one or two thousand years. Now, this is what's called the anthropic principle inequality, how it takes 14 billion years minimum, given the laws of physics that the Creator chose for the universe to make a home for humanity, but the window of time in which we can live in a civilized state is only thousands of years long, uh, which tells us that uh, evidently God's going to bring about the end of all evil and suffering quickly rather than slowly, then replaces universe with a brand new with a brand new universe. So this universe can't be our future home, because it can't sustain us much longer. But the promise of the Bible is God created this universe to bring about the end of all evil and suffering, and once that happens, he will immediately replace it with a brand new realm in which we'll be able to enjoy a much higher standard of living than what's possible in this universe and also promises our free will will be released to be able to express relationship and love at a far greater degree than anything that's possible in this universe. Uh, the, um, 
the uh, end times um, that are foretold, supposedly in the Bible, and there's some dispute. Some say that uh, uh, John the Revelator was uh, uh, actually writing about events in first century A.D. In other words, uh, you know, the destruction of the of the Second Temple in A.D. 70 and uh, and, and so forth. Uh, that he wasn't talking about uh, some future event. What is your take on, on Revelation? Well, I think it's both, because if you look at the Olivet Discourse, which describes, you know, uh, when the disciples ask Jesus, when will the end times come? And uh, when will this building that you've been talking about be destroyed? Because Jesus talked about a future time when the temple would be destroyed. Notice that the disciples asked Jesus two questions, and he gave them one answer. He said, when you see these 25 things taking place all at the same time, then you know the time is at hand. And those things all did happen uh, at the time of the destruction of the Second Temple uh, back in 70 A.D. Uh, but because uh, the disciples asked two questions, these uh, predictions will happen again. In other words, I believe there's a time in the future where we're going to see those 25 signs repeated, and uh, that will uh, presage the return of Jesus Christ uh, to planet Earth. Does but that coincide? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. That won't happen until Israel is reborn as a nation, and that took place in 48 or 67, depending on your interpretation. But also, it won't happen until this reborn Israel is without arms, uh, where it becomes the richest nation on the planet per capita, where all the Jews in the world are living in Israel, and where Israel gains political control over Ammon, Moab, and Edom. You can find all that in Ezekiel 34 through to about 39. Uh, none of that has happened yet. Well, we do have a reborn uh, nation of Israel, uh, but it's not without arms. They do not yet have political control over the ancient territories of Ammon, Moab, and Edom, and all the Jews are not living in Israel. And although it's getting close, it's not quite at the point uh, where their per capita income is the highest in the world. So on that basis, I'd say it's still off in the future. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Does the uh, end times also coincide with some of the uh, naturally occurring cataclysmic events that you mentioned earlier? In other words, the sun uh, not being able to uh, sustain photosynthesis, etc.? Uh, I don't think so, because what it talks about in the book of Revelation is how the light of the stars and the sun and the moon will be dimmed. It actually tells us it will be dimmed by about one-third. And uh, this is in the same context of forests and grass fires uh, being uh, taking place throughout the Earth. That tells me there's going to be a lot of smoke pumped into the atmosphere, and I believe it's that smoke which causes the light of the sun, moon, and stars to be dimmed, rather than the sun actually uh, getting dimmer by itself. And the physics of the sun tells us it will get brighter. But there's another place in uh, Revelation where it talks about the sun scorching men. But notice it doesn't say it kills them, just that it scorches them, which tells me that it's probably a climatic event uh, which causes the temperature of certain parts of the planet to go up a few degrees. And it only has to go up a few degrees uh, to give people that kind of an experience. Let's go back to the phones and uh, Indiana this time checking in. Doug, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show on AM 740. 
Yeah, I've got uh, something I want to bring up with Dr. Hugh. Uh, you seem to believe that uh, this planet has the only origins of intelligent human life in the universe, right? Uh, I believe that Earth is the only planet that has uh, intelligent life that's spiritual in nature. I'm not saying that the physics of the universe rules out other places where life could exist, although so far, everywhere we looked, it's hostile to life. We've yet to find any star or any planet uh, where life could exist at an advanced state. Well, don't you think that the vast distance of uh, galaxies and uh, throughout the universe, the billions of galaxies are spaced apart in such massive amounts of light years that uh, even if intelligent life existed, we would not be able to have the, the means to detect them other than maybe if we have uh, uh, unlimited magnification and some kind of uh, orbital, you know, type of uh, telescope system with unlimited ma magnifications, maybe we can possibly see some close stars within well, several we uh, hundred know, light years. Doug, or so. is that it takes a very special kind of cluster of galaxies and a very special kind of spiral galaxy within that cluster of galaxies uh, to make advanced life possible. And of all the galaxy clusters we've looked at, the only one that meets the necessary requirements is the local group in which our galaxy resides. And of all the spiral galaxies we've been able to examine in some detail, only our Milky Way galaxy has all the characteristics that are necessary for advanced life, which makes it difficult for me to watch these uh, Star Wars reruns when they talk about a galaxy far, far away, because we look far, far away, we don't find any galaxies that would be a candidate for advanced life. And there's a growing consensus in the astronomical community that the universe is hostile to advanced life, except here in our Milky Way galaxy, and except on this one planet orbiting the sun. Thank you for the call, Doug, in Indiana. hope to hear from you again. Marie is in Toronto. Good morning, Marie. Hi, guys. Um, to me... God is the ruler of our spiritual being, and uh, mostly everything that happens on earth is, uh, you know, the cause of man. The Bible, after all, was written by a man or a bunch of men. Uh, I mean, the people that run this planet, they consider themselves to be gods. Uh, you go to Britain and you have the House of Lords. Um, you know, I don't think there's any dark uh, any uh, dark angels. I think angels are beings of light. And I've had people in the Justice Department tell me that they're the dark angels. You know, they think they're above the law. We, we have the ability uh, to make hybrids. We have the ability to uh, make giants. We have the ability to cause earthquakes and storms. So why doesn't uh, he think that we are just repeating history. We've done all of this before. For all we know, the men that came down from the sky as angels could have been a big spacecraft with a hybrid crew on them. And if the uh, earth had been destroyed, then we would be peasants, not knowing much, and there would be a gang of people uh, up in the heavens coming down, and another gang of people hiding in their uh, in their little strongholds in the earth like they do now. And, uh, you know, one race Half of the race would be, uh, gee, we don't know anything, and the other one would be very technically advanced with their hybrids and everything else. So why isn't it? Why aren't we just repeating the past? Uh, Marie, if I'm following you, and, and thank you for the call, uh, the suggestion here is that there is no 
a god. There are no, uh, no. there there is no Satan. Uh, we are good and evil. Uh, some technologically advanced society, you know, would be perceived by as gods by, uh, um, you know, uh, a lesser advanced society. Uh, Doctor Ross, any any comments on that? Well, I think what I hear Marie saying is that uh, the angels are not all evil. Some are good and some are evil, and uh, you know we need to test them. I would agree with that. I would also agree that uh, we shouldn't be looking for angels everywhere. Uh, angelic encounters are, are relatively rare, except in places where there's a lot of occult activity, which invites the activity of the fallen angels. Uh, but there are two righteous angels for every fallen angel, so we need to realize, hey, you know, the good guys outnumber the bad guys. Uh, but that uh, God has held us human beings responsible uh, to manage the planet with the resources he's given us. We shouldn't be depending on angels to, quote, help us out. He's put us in charge. We're to take care of this. But angelic encounters do happen, and we're told in the Bible, test the spirits to see what they're up to, because not all of them mean you're good. Some of them mean you're harm. And sometimes you think you're uh, dealing with an angel when, in fact, it's just a human out there to deceive you. So again, test the spirits. We are spiritual beings, angels are spiritual beings, and we're called upon to put everything to the test, just like we are in science. Uh, Marie, thank you for the call. Uh, Dr. Ross, uh, quantum physics. What does quantum physics, uh, or or how can quantum physics uh, be used by someone like yourself uh, to prove, or to affirm rather, to affirm the existence of God? Well, this is like the debate between Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein over quantum mechanics. Is it determinism, or does God allow random things to happen? Does God play with dice, is what came up in their debate. Well, we now realize that in quantum mechanics, there is a Heisenberg uncertainty, that if you choose to measure the energy level of a quantum uh, event very accurately, you discover there's a tremendous uncertainty in the position of that uh, quantum entity. Uh, So if you're trying to measure the energy level of a proton, for example, you discover that the uncertainty in its position is about plus or minus half a mile. The uncertainty is large. But we now know that if the uncertainty were very slightly bigger or slightly smaller, certain proteins won't work. There's a lot of proteins in the human body that act like transistors and depend critically upon quantum tunneling. And so the bottom line is, yes, God does play with dice, but he very carefully designs the dice to get the outcome he wants, so that these proteins can operate like mini transistors and do the thing they need to do so that we can live at the level that we do. Do you think that quantum physics um, might one day help us to understand what the soul is might explain uh, resurrection? Well, there have been some physicists who have written books on this. Uh, Roger Penrose is a good example, where he claims that uh, the property of our emotions, the soul and the spirit, uh, will find answers at the quantum level, that underneath the umbrella of a quantum uncertainty would lie the explanations for all that happens at that level. Well, there I would point out that um, the quantum uncertainty is not big enough 
to squish in all that phenomena. Moreover, the thing about quantum uncertainty, it's large if you're looking at an individual particle, but if you're averaging out over an ensemble of particles, it becomes very tiny. Uh, it's basically a probabilistic uh, function. And so when you average out over the volume, uh, you get a very accurate answer. It explains the determinism in the macro world. And so I don't think it can explain uh, the property of personality, emotions, or the spirit uh, with anything that's physical. That's something that's non-physical. It's beyond the uh, matter energy uh, of the universe. All right, uh, back with more of my conversation with Dr. Hugh Ross and scientific discoveries that affirm creation. John in Oshawa, you're next in line. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Uh, Dr. Ross, I want to go back to, uh, to quantum uh, physics, uh, and I'm a, a, a layman, as anyone could tell, uh, after listening to me for about five minutes, but uh, uh, does string theory uh, does string theory help explain or affirm creation? Well, I think it does, and I wrote about this in Beyond the Cosmos, that uh, string theory establishes that there must be more than just the dimensions of length, width, height, and time, that there must be six tiny space dimensions that accompany the three large space dimensions. There are many different string theories out there, uh, but all the string theories have that in common, that we're looking at nine dimensions of space accompanying the one dimension of time. The space-time theorems establish that for the creator of the universe, that creator must have access to at least the equivalent of a second dimension of time. And so what we're looking at is a creator that brought into existence ten space-time dimensions. Uh, he also created the angelic realm. And so what does that tell us about God? And uh, in Beyond the Cosmos, I show you how you can answer questions like how God can listen to all of our prayers simultaneously, how it is that God can be closer to us physically and yet we can't see or touch him. How Jesus Christ on the cross could pay the atonement penalty for 40, 50 billion people in just a nine-hour period of time. How he could walk through walls uh, without breaking down the walls, uh, appear and disappear to people uh, suddenly. All that can be explained uh, given the extra-dimensionality that string theory establishes must be true of the universe. So what I think is compelling is it really shows you how big and how powerful uh, God must be. So is, he excuse me, is heaven then one of these, well, not theoretical, but is it one of these hyperdimensions? Does heaven reside in a hyperdimension? Well, the new creation replaces our universe after God conquers evil. And it's a completely different dimensional realm. So it's got nothing to do with the universe. The universe is removed from existence and replaced by a brand new realm. It is a place of dimensionality, because in the book of Revelation, it describes an angel with a measuring rod uh, measuring its dimensions. But it won't be length, width, or height. Moreover, it won't be cosmic time anymore, but there will be temporal experiences going on there. 
fact, I'm convinced there'll be geometric temporal experiences based on what I read. In fact, I think a fun exercise is to look at the last two chapters of the Bible and figure out the new laws of physics and the new creation. So, completely independent of our universe. All right, let's say hello to John in Oshawa. Good morning, John. You're on the line with Dr. Hugh Ross here on AM740. Yes, good evening, uh, Richard and Dr. Ross. Uh, I just want to say thanks to Dr. Ross for his uh, organization, Reason to Believe. Uh, I think that's wonderful. I just have a question related, uh, astronomical, to a uh, passage in the Bible. Uh, Joshua chapter 10, around verse 12, where Joshua asked God to stop the sun and moon in its tracks for one full day. Uh, Apparently this uh, happened, and uh, I believe someone did a back load on that on a computer model to prove that that was correct. But I would be interested in your response, Dr. Ross. Well, John, we have a paper on that you can get from Reasons to Believe. We also have uh, a television show DVD we did on that, uh, making the point that um, the claim that this has been proven by NASA scientists with their supercomputers, technically it could be done. I mean, if you got an, an eclipse of the sun from before Joshua's long day, you can predict when future solar eclipses would happen. You could take a modern-day solar eclipse and predict when eclipses should have happened in the past. And the rumor is that NASA scientists have used that kind of uh, calculation to prove Joshua's long day. Well, the truth is the ancients did not record their solar eclipses with sufficient precision to allow that calculation to be made. So the bottom line is we can't prove it through scientific calculations. Neither can we disprove it. The same thing goes for Hezekiah's uh, 40-minute advance of the sundial. By the time you get up to Hezekiah, you do the ancients measuring their solar eclipses with greater precision. But instead of an extra day, we're now looking at just 40 minutes of time. And once again, we don't have adequate precision from past solar eclipse measurements to either prove it or disprove it. And we go on in our paper and DVD to explain how we think God did do it. In the case of Joshua's long day, uh, the text there either talks about extra darkness for a day or extra light for a day. And it happens in the valley of Ajilon, a small valley uh, ringed by hills. So it's possible that God made that happen through a meteorological event. The case of Hezekiah's sundial, it tells us in the book of Isaiah that the miracle was seen both in uh, Jerusalem and in Babylon. So this, I don't think, is a meteorological event. Uh, some have suggested it might have been God's Shekinah glory. One thing we know, it was not God stopping the movement of the sun, the moon, uh, or the earth. If that were to happen, all life on earth would have been destroyed. John and Oshawa, thank you for the call. Just a few minutes uh, remain, uh, Dr. Ross, and again, I thank you for, uh, for hanging with us for the full two hours. I know that's a long haul to talk, and uh, uh, it is late as well. Uh, let me just uh, jump around here a little bit and just throw some questions out that uh, some have come in by email and some just uh, occurred in my uh, uh, reptilian brain. Uh, why aren't pyramids mentioned in the Bible? Well, pyramids are mentioned in the Bible. In the book of Isaiah, it talks about uh, these uh, 
uh, markers in uh, Egypt. And uh, many people have uh, looked at the Hebrew word and have pointed out that that Hebrew word uh, could equivalently mean uh, pyramids. Uh, it's just the one passage in Isaiah, but it's there. So, uh, All right. Um, yeah, what's your other question? Okay. Uh, do you believe in the Bible codes, that uh, there are in hidden, in, uh, there are encrypted messages uh, contained within the Bible? No, we're quite critical of the Bible code phenomena. You'll see four articles on it on our website, and uh, one of them was uh, done by uh, one of our volunteer astronomers who pointed out you can take the Gettysburg Address and actually get uh, more spectacular messages out of it than the Bible code uh, people did with the book of Genesis. It also points out that if you take the uh, Genesis text, and, uh, you know, the original, the vowels weren't there, there weren't breaks between uh, the words and the sentences, you can literally make the text say anything you want. And the proof of the pudding is these Bible code people have, quote, confirmed past events, but have never predicted future events. And so it's all hindsight, and uh, you can use the coding method literally to come up with anything you want. And as I said, we've proven that. You can take the phone book and do the same thing to it. Uh, Yvonne in Buffalo, uh, an email. Uh, why didn't Jesus uh, prohibit or say more about slavery? Well, actually, the Bible does say quite a bit about slavery. Paul addresses it and says, if you are a slave and can get your freedom, do so. And it also said to people who have slaves, be sure that you treat them uh, with decency. And in the Jewish system, slaves had to be set free after a certain number of years. And uh, actually, people have looked at those passages in the New Testament and said they equivalently could be used for employers and employees. So it's basically saying to bosses, make sure you treat your employees well, and it says to employees, make sure you serve uh, your bosses well, because that's going to be a benefit to everybody. We're to submit to one another. Uh, so... In that sense, uh, the Bible's not silent on that issue. All right. Uh, in terms of uh, you know the author of the Bible, God, uh, being uh, of, of extraterrestrial origin, uh, uh, and, and you mentioned you know that that holy scriptures actually point to fairly recent uh, astronomical discoveries, uh, but does the Bible hint at the existence anywhere of these hyperdimensions that you mentioned? Well, it does in the context that uh, the Bible describes certain attributes of God and doctrines that are impossible in length, width, height, and time. That's one reason why I became a Christian and not a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim, because as I read the other holy books, they all put God in a four-dimensional box. And I knew as a science student that you can't visualize phenomena in dimensions that you don't personally experience. So that told me that these other books were inspired by men, not by the one that created our ten-dimensional universe. How can you have free will uh, if the Creator uh, sort of exists outside you know, of time and space and is able uh, to see our future? Something I addressed in Beyond the Cosmos, that if you have a God that is able to operate through cause and effect, in the equivalent of three independent dimensions of time or more, then in the context of that God, you can have human free will simultaneously in operation with divine predestination, where God predetermines 
every word, thought, and action of every human being. In one time dimension, that's impossible. In three, there's multiple ways you can make it happen. And I use diagrams in the book to show you three different ways you can make it work. But the truth is, God's got millions of options in, in terms of trying to pull that off. Uh, and again, the, uh, the other big question that comes up again, and that is, how could an all-loving God uh, condemn a certain portion of uh, the Earth's population to uh, eternity in, in hell? Well, it tells us in the Bible that everyone has heard God's message, because God has given us two books, the Book of Nature and the Book of Scripture. Not everybody has read the Bible, but everybody has seen the record of nature. And hell is a place that people choose. Uh, heaven's for those who want to submit to the authority of God. Hell is a place for places who don't want to submit to the authority of God. And God gives you a choice where you want to spend eternity. And, uh, you know, the situation is all based on the fact of the decision you've made of where you want to put your will. And is hell fire and brimstone, or is it merely the absence of God? Well, it is the absence of God, but it tells us in Revelation that God imposes torment on the individuals in hell in proportion to the amount of evil they've committed here on earth. And the reason for the torment is to prevent them from making hell a far worse place than it otherwise would be. Not everybody gets the same torment. So I think Albert Schweitzer is going to get a small amount of torment, and Adolf Hitler is going to get a whole lot. Uh, Dr. Ross, is there anything that, uh, that hasn't arose during our conversation that you'd like to mention? Well, you mentioned the booklet, and I want to mention that every day we publish an article giving new evidences for the Christian faith. It's called Today's New Reason to Believe, and you can sign up to get those articles free of charge just by going to our reasons.org website. Well, it's been a, a real pleasure, and again, I thank you for hanging with us for the full uh, uh, two hours. And, uh, oh, I I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks. I look forward to future conversations. Dr. Hugh Ross, Reasons to, uh, Reason to Believe, and it's uh, reasons.org is the website, reasons.org. All right, my thanks to uh, Dan Ellison for his uh, capable adroitness behind the, uh, the board, the sound board, and his wizardry. Just a reminder, next week on the program, we'll give you a a chance to uh, talk a little bit about the TV show, the episodes that you've seen, and uh, if you have uh, questions, suggestions, etc. We'll also uh, talk to our media scientist friend, Nelson Fall, about what's going on in Japan, and, oh, there'll be a few other surprises, I'm sure. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.